How do you respond to seeing a miracle? I mean, a real-life, actual miracle that no laws of nature can account for. Have you ever seen that kind of miracle? Have you ever seen something that has no explanation beyond a divine one? Well, I hope so, because your salvation was a miracle. The joy in your heart that no one can explain when things are going wrong and everything is breaking bad, that's a miracle. Peace that is utterly unexplainable when all the waves of of life's oceans are crashing on you, that's a miracle. I hope all of us have seen a miracle before, but I'm talking about the kind of miracles we read about in, in the Bible. How do you respond to a miracle? Mark has been explaining to us how people respond to those miracles. Over and over again, have you noticed that when he explains a miracle that Jesus does, he also explains how everyone responds? And do you know the word he loves to use? They were amazed. They were astonished, as he says, with a great astonishment. Like he just has to repeat himself to show how mind-blowing people were in Jesus' day when they saw one of his miracles. Now, I love this aspect of Mark's storytelling because he doesn't just tell the story. He wants you to know how everyone responds at the time to the story. Now, it makes something kind of interesting here when we get to the biggest miracle in the whole gospel. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Someone who was crucified and affirmed to be dead by the Roman soldiers, and on the third day, he suddenly is alive. That is the greatest miracle, the most consequential miracle in the history of all the world. Jesus rose from the dead. Mark wants to convince you that Jesus rose from the dead. He wants you to believe that he actually did go from death to life. But he does an interesting way of trying to convince you of it. This morning as we go through these eight verses from the book of Mark, I want you to see who he's focusing on and who he's not focusing on. Do you notice something? As Calvin read those eight verses for us, Did you notice he never explained to you how the resurrection happened? There's no eyewitness account of this is what happened the moment Jesus resurrected. This is what happened to his grave clothes. This is what happened within the confines of that tomb. No, Mark doesn't focus on that. Who does Mark focus on? Mark focuses on the women, thank you, Ben, who were watching. And the big thing he wants you to take from this is that they were amazed. Now, is that the normal way that you would tell the story of a miracle? Fifteen years ago last month, a miracle happened. At least we call it a miracle. You probably have heard of it. The miracle on the Hudson. January 15, 2009. 
U.S. Airways Flight 1549 took off from New York City. About three minutes, I think, or so into the flight, it ran into a flock of, of Canadian geese, those critters. We all hate them, don't we? Flew into them, and the, all engines stopped. And now the, flight, the, the, flight, the, the plane continued to ascend for about 19 seconds until it reached its zenith, and not it went into a controlled descent. And the pilot, Chesley Sullenberger, Sully, Captain Sully, immediately radios back a mayday call. They say, turn back to LaGuardia. He says, I can't. They begin looking for other airports. They give him clearance to land on another runway. He says, we're not going to make it. We're going in the Hudson. And that U.S. Airways flight comes down and lands in a river, the Hudson River. And miraculously, all 155 people on board that airplane were saved. Now, I just want you to imagine if you were telling the story of the miracle on the Hudson, while Hollywood has and a whole bunch of other people have. I want you just to imagine if you were telling the story and the only thing you focused on wasn't the flight, wasn't how it happened, wasn't how it came down, but how amazed everyone was around the scene. You were going down to the people on the river. How amazed were you? Oh, I couldn't believe it watching that plane come down. Well, what was your reaction? Well, you wouldn't imagine. I was terrified as I saw that plane coming in. You would say, well, come on. I mean, that's part of the story, but... But I want to hear more about the miracle. Okay, so we need to step back for just a minute. Why is he telling the story like this? Why is his focus on everything that the women responded to? That's the question I want to try to answer this morning. And I just want to, to tell you, there are four different accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's the one in, the Ma- in Matthew, there's the one in Mark, there's the one in Luke, and there's the one in John. And all of these are from different perspectives, and and critics have tried to pull at each one of these accounts and say, this one differs from this one. I'm not going to give you my best guess of how to reconcile all of them. They can be harmonized, absolutely. But that's not what I'm going to try to do this morning. Maybe that'll be something that you can sit down, maybe with your family, and work through how that morning pieced together as the best way that we can understand it. That might be profitable, but for this morning, I just want to focus on why did the Holy Spirit inspire Mark to tell the story like this? And so we're going to look at three things together this morning. We're going to look, first of all, at the record that's given here. Secondly, we're going to look at the response that that Mark is really highlighting for us. And third, we're going to look at the relevance to our own lives. Why is Mark telling the story like this? And the title of our message this morning is The Resurrection, Announcement, and Astonishment. The Resurrection, Announcement, and Astonishment. Let's start, first of all, by looking at the record that's given for us. Again, how is Mark choosing to tell the story of the most dramatic miracle, the most important miracle in all of human history? And first of all, let's just start with verse 1, shall we? And really, there are just three ways, three perspectives here. One is the women assembling, the women seeing, and then the angel announcing. Look at the women assembling here. Really, in verse 47, we see that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, have seen or beheld 
where he was laid. And so recall again, Jesus, as we looked at last week, was placed in a rich man's tomb. A man named Joseph of Arimathea, a secret disciple of Jesus, a very influential man who suddenly publicly identifies with Jesus after his death, places him in his own tomb where Joseph would have been expecting to be buried one day, and rolls this massive stone in front of the door to, to, to protect from grave robbers and animals. And so Jesus is laid there. He is now in there, quietly deceased. And we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 16. And when the Sabbath was passed. Now what does that tell you? To the Jew, the Sabbath was from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. Okay? So on Saturday evening when it got dark, it was no longer the Sabbath day. And so we learn that the Sabbath day has now passed. And notice that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome had bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. So it is now dawning toward the first day of the week, Sunday, today, what we call the Lord's Day. And these women have bought spices fragrant kinds of herbs or aromas that they would bring into him to honor someone who was dead. Now, it was already a little late in the process. But nonetheless, they intended to go, just like Joseph of Arimathea had, had provided had spices for him, they also were going to come and have their own kind of memorial service at the grave. Now, these sweet spices would have been expensive. It would have been costly this was a show of, of extravagant love to a dead man, that they are coming to remember him in this way. Mark records three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of, of, of James, and Salome. We know from other gospel accounts that there were more women who came as well. And again, you can look at that in your own harmonizing study. But notice what happens, verse 2. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. There's another just very interesting detail. I mean, you can just see the, the sun beginning to peek out over the horizon. And so very early, it likely would have been before or just around 6 a.m. at that time of the year. And look at verse 3. And they said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? from the door of the tomb. Now, I just want you to step back and think about how human this is. These women love Jesus. They want to honor him with something costly and expensive. And do you know what's so human about it is? They never stop to think, well, how are we going to get in and see him? They do that on the way, as if, oh, wait a second. Um, there's, a, there's a stone in front of the door. Now, I just find that entirely human in how forgetful I am. I nearly left the house this morning without my phone, and I had to run back upstairs. I mean, I, that's just me, totally forgetful, right? And you can just picture, oh, wait, it's like all of us. But it says something else. It tells you how big the stone was. It tells you how big the stone was. Because we're recorded three women here. We know that there were up to at least five women that were there. And women in this day were not shrinking violets, 
okay? If you grew up, if you lived in an agricultural society as a woman, you were used to hard work, physical labor. These weren't women who could, didn't know how to push a light stone away from the door. These were women who were confronted with a massive stone. Look at even what it says. Um, when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away for it was very great. It was an immense stone that was there. So just another interesting point to the miracle that happened here. They didn't think that they would be able to roll away this massive stone from the door. Now notice what happens again. Look at verse 4. And when they looked, so now they have assembled, and now they're seeing something. They looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away. It had already been rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, into the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long, gar- oh, a long white garment. Again, see if you can just set the scene here. They walk up. They see the stone rolled away. And if you compare this account to Matthew chapter 28, it actually seems likely that they saw angels outside the tomb as well. Again, you can do this on your own harmonizing study, but it appears that they saw two angels, one spoke to them, and then they went into the tomb. Now, why would they have gone into the tomb? They wanted to see. And in fact, in a tomb of that day, it would be carved out of a cave. It would be carved, this, uh, this, excuse me, this tomb was carved out of a rock. So you could have gone in, and you probably would have stooped down, and you would have looked to see where the body would have been on the right. And when they looked, can't you just see, stooping, peering into this cave, there's a young man sitting there. Now, Mark doesn't expressly tell us it was an angel, but we know that it was. It was a young man clothed, he says, in a long white garment. What did they see? They didn't see Jesus. They didn't see the dead body. And notice what the angel announces to them. It says first in verse 5 that they were affrighted. The, the idea here of, of being affrighted is to be thrown into terror or astonishment. That's what that word means. Thrown into, like you are thrown out of your mind. This is the same word that Mark uses in Mark chapter 14 and verse 33 when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and it says that he began to be sore amazed. Like he just had this overwhelming astonishment grip him about what he was going to experience on that cross. And so now they are just gripped with this kind of terror or astonishment as they see something totally unexpected. And what does the angel say? Verse 6, And he saith unto them, Be not afraid. Don't be, don't be thrown into terror. Don't be astonished. Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth. That's who you're looking for. Which was crucified. Past tense. He was crucified. He is risen. I love just the difference in those two tenses. He was crucified. He was dead. He is now risen. He's alive. And notice then what he says. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. Look! No one's in here. You can see that. Next week I want to talk about this idea of of being invited to come and see. Come and look for yourself. You and I need to come and look for ourselves as well. But this angel announces to them, come and see, look, 
look where they laid him. And then he says, verse 7, but go your way, tell. Do you know those are the two essential parts of our faith? Come and see, and then go and tell. Come and see, and then go and tell. That's exactly what he says here. Look, he's not here. He's risen. And now, go tell his disciples and Peter. Oh, I love that. Peter was the one who denied him. Peter was the one who was so broken over his sin. And Jesus makes sure to say, you make sure to tell Peter by name. Make sure Peter knows I'm coming to see him too. I just, I love that. It's the heart of of our Savior for even a, a, a disciple who has wandered. That he goeth before you into Galilee, there shall ye see him as he said unto you. Mark chapter 14, Jesus says, when I am risen, I will be, go before you into Galilee. And the angel is wanting to remind the disciples of what Jesus had said. Now notice this, this is the record. These women, their testimony of what they saw has now come down across 2,000 years of history and God wants to hold their testimony up to you and say, do you believe it? Do you believe this is what they saw? Do you believe they saw an angel in that tomb? Do you believe they didn't see a body in that tomb? Do you believe them? The record is given for you to assess. Do I find it credible? Do I think it's true? But I want you to notice, again, Mark doesn't say anything about the mechanics of how Jesus was risen. He doesn't focus like Mark does on the earthquake and on the people who were outside the tomb. He doesn't focus on other details that you might have said, well, come on, give us a little more. What he focuses on, the stars of the show, are the women. Because notice what he says secondly about their response. Verse 8, will you notice with me? And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. Do you know there were at least four things that Mark wants you to be very clear about their response to this, what they had just seen? Here's the first thing he wants you to make sure that you see. They ran for their lives. They fled. How would you have reacted? No, seriously. How would you have responded to what they saw? They ran. Now, we know from the book of Matthew, they ran to tell the disciples. And I bet you would have found someone to tell eventually too. No, I mean, seriously, think about this. One of our dear brothers or sisters at Straight Gate here dies. And you go to their funeral. And you go to their burial site, to their internment. And you see the casket go down into the grave. And the next Sunday, you see them walking in to Straight Gate. Buzzing in and walking through the narthex. And you say, no, wait a second. I, I saw you last week. You were, you were buried. Oh yeah, I was. I, I, I was resurrected from the dead. No, seriously, what, what would be your reaction to that? You would be amazed. You would be astonished. You probably would start shaking like a leaf. Seriously. These women ran. They were gripped. 
by what they had just experienced. Not only that, look at what he says. Not only did they run, they, they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher, the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. The, the, the Greek here, and I'm no Greek scholar, but the Greek word here is really interesting. The idea here is that they were gripped with trembling. They were seized by trembling. It's like they just started shaking uncontrollably. They were amazed. Wow. Have you ever had that kind of astonishment? You can't even think straight. That's what they experienced. Not only that, we're told that they were speechless. Look at verse 8. Again, the end of verse 8. Neither said they anything to any man. Now, don't get confused by the fact that they went back and told the disciples just like they were instructed. It seems clear to me what happened. They ran with such terror that they didn't stop anyone on the way. They didn't say anything to anyone as they were going. They just ran. Did they get to the disciples and tell them? Yes, that's not inconsistent with this. That's talking about how they were responding when they were running. They were rendered speechless. And the last thing, notice what they said, what, what it said about them. They were afraid. They were afraid. Now, is this weird to you? Would you have expected them to, 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 to throw a big party right outside the tomb? I serve a risen Savior. He's in. No, seriously. I would have done what they did. I would have run. I would have ultimately looked for someone to tell. I would have been blown out of my mind. They were afraid. I love what Matthew says in Matthew 28. He says, they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy. With fear and great joy. They couldn't believe it. Now let's stop there for just a moment. Why does Mark want you the biggest thing for you to take away from his description right now is how the women responded. In other words, we've talked about the record that's been given. We've talked about the response that these women made. And now let's talk finally about the relevance. Why does it matter? Why does it matter that these women were taken with terror? Why does it matter that they were trembling and shaking like a leaf? Why does it matter that they ran? Why does it matter that they were afraid? Let me suggest a few things. The first piece of relevance is it was totally unexpected. It wasn't expected. Did you get that from the story? Mark wants you to be really clear that they, the last thing they were expecting was a living Jesus. They came to honor a dead man. That's why they bought the spices. You don't anoint with spices a living man. This was for a dead guy. And they paid a lot of money so that they could go pay their last respects to a dead man before he was too decayed beyond recognition. They weren't looking for a living man. Now you say, well, that's kind of weird because Jesus told them that he would be resurrected. Yeah. How many times have you come to church on a Sunday morning and the pastor has opened the Bible and preached to you from something or he, he, he mentions a verse and you said, wow, I, for, I forgot that was even in the Bible. Some of you have read through the Bible 
over and over and over and over again and you read things and you hear them and then someone talks about them and you say, oh yeah, I had forgotten about that part. I had forgotten about that truth. Oh, that's really a good reminder. It's not surprising that these women had forgotten, that these women, it wasn't foremost on their mind. They were overwhelmed in grief. They wanted to honor a dead man and they had no thought that they might be confronting the fact of a living man. Now, I find this very confirmatory of their testimony. I find this to strengthen my belief in the resurrection, that these women and, and Jesus' 11 remaining disciples weren't expecting him to rise from the dead. In fact, we'll look at this more next week, that when, these, when the testimony actually reached these disciples, what did his own disciples say? Nah, too far-fetched. I, literally, it says they didn't believe them. I find that to strengthen my faith. That the ultimate testimony of the resurrection of the dead was confronted by even the, those who loved Jesus the most and didn't find it plausible initially. This is not something they made up because they wanted to. It's something that they had to be convinced of beyond their expectation and their belief. It wasn't expected. Now again, let me ask you this this morning, friend. Do you accept their testimony? Do you believe that Jesus actually bodily was raised from the dead? This is the fundamental question of our faith. It's why Paul says in Romans chapter 10 that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Do you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead? If you do, your belief is rooted in part on what these women testified to, what they saw that Sunday morning 2,000 years ago. But there's another piece, I think, of relevance to us. It's not just that it wasn't expected. It's that it was truly, absolutely extraordinary. And this is where I want to focus for the remaining minutes that we have today. This was extraordinary. Now you say, of course it was extraordinary. No, no, no. Pause for a minute. Do you really understand how extraordinary this was? Do you understand how this violated every piece of the law of nature that we all see? That you are born, you begin dying from the moment you, bo you are born, then you die and from a human earthly perspective, that's it? You go into the ground? That is our experience. That is what we see and we live out and we know will be our story. That when death entered the world, death has been the unshakable enemy of every human being. You see death already beginning to work as you age, as you die to various things that you could do when you were younger. You feel already death advancing on you, and you know intellectually whether you will embrace it or not, that one day you will die. One day your body will experience and be defeated by that foe. One day you will rest in a grave. You will die. It is, it is absolutely certain. 
And so therefore, for all of us who know this enemy, who have seen it touch the lives of our loved ones and the lives of our family, the lives of our church friends, we know death is the undefeated foe. And therefore, the extraordinary nature of what these women were testifying to, that death was defeated, that death was conquered, that there is an empty tomb, not a tomb that holds the body of Jesus of Nazareth. This is extraordinary. Dead people don't rise. And I want you to notice this morning, friends, that the New Testament authors do not shy away from how extraordinary this claim is. They don't run past it. They highlight how extraordinary it is. This truly, if I can say it, is unbelievable. This defies all of our understanding. Now you say, why does that matter? It matters because Mark wants to convince you of how truly unbelievable this is, of how truly extraordinary it is that Jesus of Nazareth was dead, confirmed to be dead by the Roman soldiers, and He ultimately came alive and lives. He is not here. He is risen. He wants you to embrace how extraordinary it is. You know, friends, when we confront miracles in our lives, it's very easy for us to become ultimately jaded to that miracle. I think of how we use a miracle to refer to some colloquially to some great event. Some of you were alive when the miracle on ice happened. 1980, the underdog U.S. amateur uh, ice hockey team was playing in the Winter Olympics coached by St. Paul's own Herb Brooks. They went up against the mighty Soviet Union team, and they were the, the, the utter underdog in that semifinal matchup. No one expected them to have a chance. And the U.S. team, with pluck and with grit, pulled out a victory. And there's that famous call of the sportscaster Al Michaels saying as the clock ticked down to zero, Do you believe in miracles? Yes! You know, if you were alive at that point and you were a patriotic American, you probably paid some attention to that. The whole country had a sense of pride that our boys took it to those enemy Soviets. It was the miracle on ice. When's the last time you thought about the miracle on ice in 2024? When's the last time that miracle really astonished you and amazed you? and had the, the, the ability to grip you. Some of you are Vikings fans. You remember the Minneapolis miracle. You remember the, 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 the Minneapolis scene as this, this miraculous event, this football game happens, and then fast forward 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 years, and some elderly folks will think, wow, that was an amazing game, wasn't it? No one else will think about it very much. What am I saying? I'm saying it's natural for us to respond to these areas of, of astonishment and amazement, and ultimately it just gets old. It's like, it's like when I went to the state fair with the young Lars, 
and we pulled in to the parking lot on this, we went to this one of those ride shuttles, you know, the bus takes you in, and Lars sees bus after bus after bus after bus, and it was the funniest thing, because he just kept it looking out the window, you say, bus, 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 I mean, here was a kid in heaven, all these buses, you know, Lars is 10 now, he doesn't do that anymore. He's seen things a lot more amazing than a bus. It just got old to him. And, you know, you say, where are you, where are you going, Pastor Peter? I'm asking you this. Are you still amazed that Jesus was raised from the dead? Does it still have the power to grip you with astonishment and say, I really believe he was? I really believe he's alive. I really believe those women were telling the truth with what they saw. You see, what I prayed this morning is that each one of you who came here this morning would have a fresh sense of amazement, just like these women had. That Mark is telling you how astonished they were at this story so that you would get refreshed in your own amazement, in your own astonishment that yes, he did overcome death. Yes, he did defeat the grave. Yes, he is alive today. You know, friends, I don't get that offended by the people who listen to the story of the resurrection of Christ and say, I can't believe that someone would rise from the dead. I just can't believe. That's too extraordinary. I don't get that offended by those people. Do you know why? Because it is an extraordinary claim. It is unbelievable from a human perspective. No, those people don't offend me. Do you know who offends me? The people who say, I believe that Jesus of Nazareth resurrected from the dead, and it doesn't touch their life at all. Those are the people who I, I, I can't understand. You say you believe the most incredible thing that ever happened in human history, and it doesn't change the way you live. It doesn't change the way you approach death. You're still terrified of, of the thought of death. There's no point to you in taking risks for eternity, but yet you say that you believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That doesn't match. No, friend, what's going to change the way that you live today is when you have a fresh sense of amazement that the most unbelievable thing that ever has been testified into human history actually happened. Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. Do you know Paul had this same sense, I think, of astonishment and wonder? Do you know it changed the way that he lived? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 32, Paul is defending the bodily resurrection from the dead. And he says, if after the manner of man, if just after a human manner, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus. What's he talking about? He's talking about his persecution. About his mockery, about his true apparent battle with wild animals at Ephesus for the sport of everyone who was there. His own persecution in life. He says, what advantage it me? What profit is it if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, if I have to go through all of these earthly persecutions, what good is it for me if I'm not going to rise again from the dead one day? 
No, do you know what the only logical way is if, if you don't believe in resurrection? Let's eat, drink, and be merry. Let's have as good a time as we can have right now. Let's live it up because tomorrow we might die and it's all going to be over. Oh, not Paul. He said, where are those beasts? Bring them on. Because if I get eaten, I know where I'm going. If I die for my faith, I know what's going to happen. Because Jesus rose from the dead. And that means I am too. You know, friend, when you unshakably believe that the testimony of these women is true, when you unshakably believe that there was an empty tomb, he is not here, he is risen, it's got to change the way you live. Do you want to know how to approach death? What's common for all of us? With the kind of peace and assurance be convinced that Jesus rose from the dead and that he guarantees your resurrection. Do you want to have the assurance that your sins are forgiven? That you have a right relationship with God? Well, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4 that Jesus was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Jesus being raised from the dead was God's stamp of approval that he has accepted his sacrifice and that your sins are covered by his blood. Do you want to live boldly, generously, radically different in this world than the people around you? Then be astonished in your belief that Jesus was actually raised from the dead and start living like it. Friends, I think this is a big reason why in Mark's account of the resurrection of Christ, he spends so much time focusing on these dear women and how absolutely amazed they were. Because he wants you to be amazed. And he wants you to live like it. Let's pray.